You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War Premium Episode number 27. Last episode, we looked at the lead-up to the war and the evolution of the British Army Medical Services during that time. We also spent quite some time talking about the complications of rounding up enough doctors to be sent to the army without completely robbing the civilian sector of necessary physicians. This problem will also be a big topic for us today. I initially became interested in this topic after reading Doctors in the Great War by Ian Whitehead, and that interest just cascaded into more than a week of almost constant research into the topic over the holidays. The reason that it hooked me the way that it did was because it was a critical topic, but also one that could apply to us today. Our societies, much like that of Britain in 1914, is not in any way prepared to lose half of their doctors in a pretty short amount of time. But I do want to reassure everyone that we will be getting to the discussions about medical care both at the front and behind it in the next episode, and the one after that. Today we will instead be focusing on the specifics of how the British got fully trained male doctors to the front in the last two years of the war. We will then also look at how the British handled medical students, a critical decision point both for maintaining the supply of doctors during the war, but also making sure that there was still a pipeline of doctors for when the conflict was over. We will then close out this episode by looking at female doctors and nurses. In both cases, the women who just wanted to contribute and assist in the war would be in a constant battle of trying to convince the male-dominated military and government that women were fully capable of providing valuable care near the front lines, and eventually the women would win this battle, but it would be a long slog. Our story begins right where it ended last time, at the start of 1916. Between 1916 and 1918, the British Army would go from employing around a quarter to well over a half of all the doctors in the British Isles. The introduction of the draft in early 1916 required even more doctors to be brought in, and to facilitate this effort, a new national organization was created to determine doctors that could be drafted into military service. These doctors would be of military age and would be replaced by other, generally older, doctors. At first, these doctors were not themselves conscripted into military service, and hence the government did not have total say in what they did or where they went. But when there were problems finding replacement doctors for those drafted into service, this policy was rethought. In the middle of 1916, it was decided that older doctors between the ages of 45 and 55 would be drafted into service. They would be commissioned as medical officers, just like their younger colleagues. However, they would be restricted to home service. 
This allowed for this pool of older doctors to be mined for manpower to be sent out wherever they were needed in Britain so that younger doctors would be able to go to the front. For many of these older men, this was acceptable. I mean, they wanted to contribute, although some would find their new workloads more than they could handle. One interesting wrinkle, and something that we touched on last time but I wanted to talk a little bit more about, was the topic of patients and how they were handled with all the shifting of these doctors. Much like the United States today, people were generally free to choose their own doctors, and they could move from one to another if they wanted to and one was available. This made many men who were called away to service very nervous that when they got back, all of their patients would stick with their temporary doctors, if possible, instead of coming back to them when they returned. The Times would have a letter from a doctor who had most of his patients slowly siphoned away by other doctors who did not join the war effort. Quote, I had to leave my practice to my colleagues who promised to keep a note of all my patients consulting them and forward me half the fees received. I've never received a single penny. When I placed the matter before the branch president, BMA, he wrote to my nearest colleague with a view to his taking to the whole of my practice. The reply he received to the effect is that it was quite impossible, as his practice was increasing by leaps and bounds. In the meantime, by a curious coincidence, my own head disappeared. End quote. In general, the patients themselves did not always stick with their doctors later, even though most would say that they would do so when their doctors returned. Another doctor would say that, quote, even friendly colleagues often forget to ask a newcomer if he had previously attended by an absentee, whilst naturally they never dream of putting the question to one of their old patients who returned to the fold after an unaccountable absence of several years. Another factor not allowed for by the committees is that many of the patients think that they will get better treatment at first than at second hand, and therefore not only seldom volunteer the information, but often deliberately conceal it from their new physicians. There were some schemes that would try to prevent these kinds of situations from occurring. For example, the insurance companies tried to help out by preventing doctors from taking on another doctor's patients after he returned from the front for a period of time but none of them were totally successful. There were concerns that were most acute for urban doctors, where there was greater availability of care, with rural doctors having at least some protection due to simple geography. This was not the only concern for doctors in the military. Another problem would be felt strongest by older doctors in uniform. These doctors had generally already established themselves in a practice and in an area, and probably had established their own patient lists before being called away. Since they were being called away for an indefinite amount of time, if they came back and their practice did not continue, they faced possible financial ruin and the inability to support their families. They would also receive the same pay as medical officers who were straight out of medical school. These younger doctors had it best. They were gaining incredibly valuable experience with no real downside since they were not leaving anything behind that could fall apart. They were better able to bank their army pay until after the war was over as well, allowing them to start their careers after the war with a bang. Meanwhile, the older doctors could lose everything if their practices did not recover on their return. For one group, there was only upside, for the other, only downside. Both of these groups were then heavily disliked by those that served as medical officers before the war in the professional army. The newcomers were often given higher ranks and more pay than those who had been in service before the war, with this inequality being felt strongest by the doctors in the territorial units who had been called up very soon after the war started. 
it had been impossible for many of these doctors to properly prepare their civilian practices for their departure, like many later volunteers could, and they were set to serve for the duration of the war, instead of for a short period like the wartime volunteers. This is actually something I forgot to mention earlier. Many of the medical officers who volunteered after the war began only had a one-year enlistment period, after which they could choose whether or not to renew for another year. This would become an important factor as fewer and fewer doctors were available. All of these doctors were then understandably concerned when they felt like they were not even needed at the front. The general ebb and flow of conflict was foreign to many doctors, and this meant that when there were periods where the army had more doctors than it needed, there was always an overarching generalizations made about how many doctors the army needed in total. There would be lengthy periods where there would not be much for many medical officers to do, and this made them start to question why the army required their services at all. One medical officer would say, quote, I have now just completed my year, and if I had it all to do if I had all the work to do that I have done in that time again, I could easily fit it into one month, and I have plenty of time for recreation and study. It can be no question of my having fallen on a soft job, as I've practically every I've done practically every sort of job in my time, both at home and in France, with the exception of work in a CCS, where I believe the medical officers are generally overworked. End quote. This type of concern, even if it was just part of military life, made many doctors far less likely to re-up for another year once their first was complete, and this would very soon be a problem. The entire concept of allowing medical officers to opt out of another year of service began to be questioned in 1917. These questions would ramp up after August when the war office would be told that the supply of new medical officers had been completely exhausted. This revelation would be the final straw that would lead to the creation of a commission of inquiry, and after the commission was completed, they would have a few recommendations. The first was a reduction in the number of medical officers with a field ambulance, with those officers to be replaced by men who were not doctors. And then they also believed that there were some savings on ambulance trains, again by substituting non-doctors in for medical officers. In both of these cases, it was mostly just a recognition that some of the jobs being done by the medical officers could be done by nurses or trained aides. While these moves did help alleviate some of the problems, the ability of medical officers to leave after their annual contract was still considered a problem. This meant that in December 1917, a new rule was created. After that date, any medical officer that relinquished his commission on expiration would be immediately called into military service for the rest of the war. So while the ability to decline a new contract still existed, exiting the armed forces was no longer an option. While this would help, the German spring offensives would force the British to extend medical officer conscription to doctors aged up to 55. These older doctors were then used to fill spaces at base hospitals while younger doctors were moved closer to the front. In many ways, the British medical services were lucky that the war ended when it did. If the war had continued into the next year, they may have found it difficult to find enough trained medical officers to fill the ranks if only because of the arrival of the Spanish flu, a topic for another episode. We turn now to our first group of people to discuss today that are not certified male doctors when the war started, and this first group is medical students. Much like any other group of young people in Britain, when the war started, many medical students wanted to assist in the war effort as soon as possible. For many of the men, this meant volunteering for service in the army, and for women, volunteering for either nursing or medical groups like the Red Cross. 
many of the male students made it to the front, and their exodus from medical schools was seen as a serious problem. In total, there were 1,000 fewer students in medical schools by the end of the first year of the war, and the war office first advised medical students who had joined the armed forces that the best way to do their duty was to return home and finish their studies as soon as possible. Now, when this understandably did not bring as many students back as hoped, the war office took more drastic measures. In 1915, most medical students serving at the front, who had been in their last two years of school, were brought back and instructed that they had to finish their studies. With many men in society who had not volunteered being accused of cowardice in 1915, medical students who were brought back to school were allowed to wear their military uniforms. This was important because it let everybody know that these men were doing what their country needed them to do, even if it wasn't fighting at the front and I'm sure it was pretty helpful for student morale as a whole. When the Derby scheme was enacted, and it required men to attest to future service, there was a special bit of rules about medical students. Officially, those students in the final half of their schooling could simply attest that when their studies were complete, they would make themselves available as medical officers, and if they did not agree to this, then they could be called up at any time. Those students who were in the first half of their schooling would be liable to be called up to general service at any time as well. For female students, the situation was different. Since they were not liable to be called up, they generally just continued their studies as normal. It is likely that if the war had continued another few years, they would have been involved with the war effort in some way, or more of a way than they were, but that did not happen. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. These new rules and regulations left one group of former students a bit in the lurch. Those who had been in the first half of their studies who had volunteered as soon as the war started. These students were not called back from the front since they were early in the studies, but for many, if they had not volunteered in 1914 and 1915, they would have been in the last half of their studies by the time that the Military Service Acts came into place after the Derby Scheme. 
This unfortunate timing seriously damaged their future employment opportunities, since many of their former classmates were by 1916 almost done with medical school and about to start a very difficult but very rewarding tour as medical officers instead of as infantry soldiers. Here is one father discussing this specific situation for his son. I think the last two sentences really say it all. Quote, My only son accepted a commission in 1914 when in his second year. He has now been on foreign service for over two years and looks like serving two more years. By that time, he will be 24 years of age and will still have four more years before he can qualify, not to speak of the year or two of hospital work before he will be fit to succeed me. Meanwhile, those students in his year, who quite as fit as he, but endowed with less patriotic feeling and more concern for their own individual welfare, resisted their country's call, and now are enjoying complete immunity from service, together with good hospital appointments as unqualified house surgeons, and are within a year of being able to take up practice. One wonders whether patriotism really pays. Still, I do not envy them or wish my son had emulated them." End quote. Our second group of individuals are female doctors. The War Office simply refused to even consider the idea of women doctors serving overseas. Instead, they wanted them to serve in hospitals in Britain to free up the men to go to the front. While the British were a bit more backwards in their views on this subject, there were other countries where female doctors were called into service at at or near the front, and in these situations, they performed splendidly. One example of this was in Serbia, where women worked right up to the front, saving both injured men and helping those suffering from diseases. Another area where the war office refused to take women seriously was in the area of commissions. As we discussed last episode, the path for medical officers to get proper commissions was a long one, but the war office drew the line before giving them to women. Instead, the women were classified as attached to the medical corps, but were not actually a part of it and their pay did not rise above that of an infantry captain. It was not just vanity or greed that caused the female doctors to desire these commissions, though a bit more pay would have been greatly appreciated. The problem was that not having sufficient rank meant that they did not have the authority to efficiently carry out the jobs that they were already performing. This meant that the British would not be doing a good job of utilizing what was becoming a very valuable resource, trained medical personnel, just because they were female. While the British government did not allow female doctors close to the front, they found another way, through the Red Cross and other civilian organizations. These organizations were more than happy to employ female doctors, and in these roles they proved that they were equal to their male counterparts. Here is a lengthy quote from Dr. Elizabeth Coulthard, who worked in a hospital in Villers-Cortes, northwest of Paris. Quote, there came an order for the hospital to evacuate. Then came an order that heaps of terribly wounded were expected and we could stay on. We were glad. It seemed horrid to be told to go and leave things behind us. All the night we were hard at it and working under difficulties. Terrible cases came in. Between 10.30 and 3.30 or 4 a.m., we had to amputate six thighs and one leg, mostly by the light of bits of candle held by the orderlies, and as for me giving the anesthetic, I I did it more or less in the dark at the end of the patient. Air raids were over us nearly all night. Sometimes we had to blow out the candles for a few minutes and stop when one heard the Bosch right over. Next morning, on the May 30th, 1918, about 11 a.m., we were told the whole place must be evacuated, patients and all. So during the day, we did have a strenuous time. Patients had come in all through the night, some practically dying, all wanting urgently operations upon them. 
But we had to stop operating, dress the patient's wounds, and splint them as best as we could. All day long, ambulances came and we got patients away. End quote. Unfortunately for many female doctors and nurses as well, with the end of the war, instead of the situation improving at home because of proof of their abilities, they, were, they would often find the same sexist feelings as they had before 1914. While female doctors had some difficulty getting the credit that they deserved, the same cannot be said for the nurses at the front. By the early 20th century, nursing was a long-established, well-regarded, and greatly valued aspect of medical care. Everyone knew that good nursing meant saving lives. During the war, nurses would work at every hospital in Europe, and they would be present at casualty clearing stations, some getting even closer to the front. Mary Borden, who would serve as a nurse during the war, would describe her job like this. Quote, it was my business to sort out the wounded as they were brought in from the ambulances and to try and keep them from dying before they could get to the operating rooms. It was my business to sort out the nearly dying from the dying. I was there to sort them out and tell them how fast life was ebbing in them. It was my business to create a, and a counterwave of life, to create the flow against the ebb. It was like a tug of war with the time. End quote. As everyone in the hospitals and casualty clearing stations became more and more busy, the role of nurses continued to grow larger and larger. It began with the move to have nurses take up the dressing work. Traditionally, this dressing would have been done by surgeon's assistants, but there were simply not enough of those to go around, and so the nurses were trained on how to manage wounds by keeping pressure on them, applying proper bandages, manually compressing arteries with their fingers, or utilizing pressure points to stop the flow of blood. In many of these situations, the nurses became lifesavers, not just some ancillary individual in charge of taking care of convalescing soldiers. Many nurses would also be asked to make critical clinical decisions in pressure-filled moments because they were the only ones available. In a somewhat funny development in November 1917, there was a big announcement from the Director General of the British Medical Services. The nurses would now be invited to train as anesthetists. This was a great move, except for the fact that in many hospitals, nurses were already acting as anesthetists, and they had been for some time. In all of these situations, the nurses stepped into roles where they were needed to make sure that lives were saved. Just like every other member of the military establishment, nurses served in many theaters outside the Western Front. In many of these areas, the experiences were different than in France and Belgium. An additional hardship for these nurses outside the Western Front was a general lack of supplies, forcing them to make do with what was available and be innovative with their treatments. In places like Egypt, a huge problem was that the dust and sand could get everywhere, and it would often be carrying microorganisms that could cause infections. Eva Lee was a nurse at Lemnos in September 1915, with Lemnos being the primary base of operations for the Gallipoli campaign and the first stop of many wounded men who had been evacuated from the fighting. She would say this about her experience. Quote, One, flies. Flies everywhere. Two, you can't bathe because the sea is full of scum and dead horses. Three, only one pint of water is allowed to each one for all purposes as it is so scarce and has to be taken there. Four, food is awful. Five, work too much. Six, no butter, only goat's milk, no shops, no news. In fact, the only good thing about it as far as we can hear is the beautiful sunsets and sunrises and that the climate is cooler. It is still very hot here and we have all been a bit bowled over by it. End quote. 
While every effort was made to keep the nurses out of any combat situation, what they were doing was still very dangerous. The biggest concern was infection. The long working hours, the stress, and the working conditions meant that infection could quickly overwhelm a nurse's already reduced immune system. There were also small infections that, while not life-threatening, were still annoying. One of these was called septic finger, which would occur when fingers became cut or scraped, something that was very easy to happen, and then they got infected. In many of these cases, the problem was not critical, but it made it more difficult to use those fingers. I think the best way to close out this episode is to look at three first-hand accounts from nurses during the war. The first will be a nurse who was in a train carrying wounded from the First Battle of Ypres in 1914. Quote, we were tackling a bad wound in the head, and when it was finished and the man was being got comfortable, he flinched and remarked, that leg is a beast. We found a compound fractured femur. He had blankets on and had never mentioned that his thigh was broken. It too had to be packed, and all he would say is, that leg is a beast. That leg is a beast. Our second quote is from an unknown Western Front nurse. Quote, I have many times felt myself in a tight corner during the war, but never in such a one as this when I stood in the middle of one of the wards filled with over 200 of the worst gas cases I've ever seen, and only a few hurricane lamps to give us a little light. I remember the feeling of despair that came over me, and the relief we all felt when the early hours of the morning brought us light at last. End quote. And finally, here is Sister Eveline Vickers' foot, who would describe patients suffering from cholera in June 1917. Cases would die on the stretcher 12 hours after they had taken ill. We dressed in rubber costumes with masks and overalls and rubber boots. The vomiting was so terrible we had to have masks, a jacinet across the nose and mouth, with a wad of wool soaked with a strong-smelling antiseptic. End quote. Next episode, we will dig into the details of the treatment techniques and technologies that doctors and nurses were using to treat the wounded and to slow the spread of disease in the armies. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me.